Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, it's time for Charitable Georgia. Brought to you by Bees Charitable Pursuits and Resources. We put the fun in fundraising. For more information, go to beescharitablepursuits.com. That's B-E-E-S charitablepursuits.com. Now, here's your host, Brian Pruitt. Good, fabulous Friday morning. It's another fabulous Friday with three more fabulous guests. We've got uh, a pretty cool show this morning. Um, the three guests that I have all have something pretty cool in common, which we'll get to in just a second. But my first guest this morning is Caitlin Thomas. Caitlin, thanks for being here this morning. Thank you for having me, Brian. So um, you are from the Cartersville area, and you're starting a community magazine, correct? That is correct. So give us a little background. Why are you doing that? And, and share a little bit of your story, and then we'll get into why I asked you here. Okay. So actually, uh, before I came into publishing this magazine, I was working in life insurance and wanted to have something a little bit more positive to be giving the community. So found myself um, this position with publishing the community magazine for Cartersville. It's going to be called Cartersville Living. It's about bringing the community together. We stay away from divisive topics, and it's really just about uniting the community um, making homeowners aware of services in the community that are uh, available to them, in addition to, you know, really just bringing the businesses together, highlighting them as the go-to with these homeowners as well. Is this going to be a monthly magazine, weekly magazine, quarterly? It'll be a monthly magazine. So we highlight local residents, those that are either doing work in community or in charitable events such as yourself. Um, so nonprofits or working in the school districts, we want to highlight those individuals because the homeowners that we are distributing to have a little bit more, um, I would say, funds available to contribute to those nonprofit organizations. And this is going to be a hard copy magazine as well as online? It will be a hard copy magazine, and we do digital footprint with um, advertisements online. Is it a subscription-based, or how do people get the magazine? So it's going to be direct mail. Um, so our, our homeowners, they don't have to pay for the subscription. Um, it is really just a complimentary thing about bringing the community together. Awesome. Well, the reason I asked you here, just like these other folks, you have a background in martial arts, so that's pretty cool. And um, my uncle, a um, little piece of trivia for you guys, my uncle is in, in martial arts. He's also a martial arts heart of famer. Um, I actually took Taekwondo up until about, uh, the seventh grade when I broke my leg the night before I was supposed to test for my blue belt and I never went back. So, um, <clears throat> that's a different story, but anyway, so share a little bit about your, your martial arts training and, uh, the type you do and, um, why you're doing it. Okay. So, um, my background is in Kitsugan martial arts. Um, there's not very many schools of Kitsugan here in Georgia. Actually, I come from the only school here in Georgia for Kitsugan, all other Kitsuga Martial Arts Studios are in New York. Um, but really what brought me into it was I come from a large family and my dad wanted us all to have that discipline instilled in us. So I'm one of nine kids and that was a very big deal was the discipline and the structure within the family. So that's really where it started was just wanting to have that instilled in us. But for me, what took off was the really influence that my sensei had on me 
and his roping me into, you know, his training courses and um, doing women's self-defense courses. And for me, that was just all the motivation and inspiration I needed was just somebody to be pouring into me that way. Can you take us through a little bit about your how your training goes and went? Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> that's hard. Um, so we had um, – you know, we had some days that were just very basic as far as, you know, you're going through your katas, you're going through your um, basic punches, you know, and then we had have our days where we have intensified training, you know, you'd walk in, and it's just intensified training, and you're just, oh, crap, you know, uh, sorry, I don't know if I- <laughs> the FCC is not listening, you can go ahead. Okay. <laughs> um, and intensified training for us was, um, you know, you could be in a horse stance, and you'd feel like you're sitting there for an hour. Um, he'd take, you know, one of the smaller weight kids, set him on one of your legs, make sure that you can hold that stance for as long as possible, or it would mean, um, you know, sparring or cubbing until your gi and your belts are falling off. And in those situations, you're not able to fix yourself. Um, so you're really just more intensified, um, on a basic day though, um, it's a little bit more structured. Um, you're going through your forms, like I had said, or your katas, um, or instructing younger younger generation um, students on their kicks, punches, forms, etc., holds. Um, when you talk about the kids on your legs, I thought you were going to drop kick them across the room. So <laughs> uh. that would be easier. <laughs> uh, you had, I mean, you know, I sat down and talked to. We talked a little bit. My uncle used to be one of the judges of Battle of Atlanta, and I think. Uh, you've probably all three been involved with Battle of Atlanta, but you get, you've done some competitions not only here in Georgia but in, in other places as well. Can you talk about a little bit of the tournaments you've been in? I have. So it was always hard for us as uh, Kitsuke and Studio going into these, you know, Battle of Atlanta or other competitions because most of the judges are not familiar with Kitsuke and martial arts. They don't know how to judge the katas that we are performing. They're more um, familiar with, you know, Taekwondo or. Um, I guess was probably the main one that we were competing against back then. But um, as far as the fighting goes and the sports competition, we always did well in those competitions. Um, Our studio was not one of these storefronts that you see with uh, the advertisements out front. We had a basement that we practice in. Um, You know, we didn't wear a lot of gear. We had maybe head head pads and hand pads. So I would feel as though we had a little bit more, uh, traditional training in regards to our martial arts. So we always did well in our sports competitions, um, but it's very different from, say, you know, your typical life self-defense courses. Sports fighting is a little bit different. Can you explain the difference? So, um, well, when you're training for a self-defense real-life scenario, um, you're going up against individuals who might not have the same training as you, number one. Um, You're also having to gear a lot more of their body language, et cetera, um, and just your life experiences in the dojo, whereas in sports competition, you know that you're up against somebody who has similar training as you, um, and you're really – you're trying to find the opening, so to speak. You talked about earlier – 
the only school in Georgia you you shared that your uh, sensei recently passed away, but you shared with me that you wanted to kind of continue and be able to teach uh, not only women, but I guess the younger generation as well. You're a mom. You have some kids. that. So why is it important to kind of continue, I guess, the, the training and, and, and teaching? So um, my sensei, he actually – he brought up the studio number one because he wanted his kids to have the same growth experience that he had. Um, he came from New York and, you know, they didn't wear pads, period, at his studio. Um, so he started up just for kicks here in Georgia um, for his children. So he really was starting the studio or continuing the classes until his kids became black belts and they had that training instilled in them. Um, I'm just grateful that I got to be a part of that. Um, I got to be a part of his family and I have a little bit of regret, honestly, in not continuing my training. When I became a mom, I became a mom very early on. I had my first child when I was 21 um, and I had actually just stopped assisting my sensei in his women's self-defense courses probably five months before I got pregnant. Um, but now after his passing and going back, visiting the studio, um, I feel like it's something I could start back up. Um, my kids have recently become very interested in the karate kid and they have been, you know, just messing around. Um, they've had some bullies in the neighborhood and, you know, I don't want this to be something that they're utilizing in those situations, but I want them to be able to defend themselves. I want them to have that confidence that I had um, and be prepared if something were to happen. You got the cars ready for wax on, wax off? Oh, yeah. All right. <laughs> nice. Um, so you talked about the magazine and in the community and um, share a little bit of why it's important to be a part of the community and be uh, a positive influence in the community because you shared it's going to be positive stories and things of that nature. Why is that important? There is a lot of negativity going around in the world these days, and I feel like a lot of the media sources that we have tap into those negative stories. They highlight those negative stories, um, and they have a certain energy that carries with them, and that's something I try to stay away from in all honesty. Um, so I want to be part of the positive that is happening in the world. I want to make people aware of the resources, number one, that they have available to them in the community. Um, because in Cartersville, we have a lot, and I feel like a lot of them go unnoticed. Hence the reason you're on Charitable Georgia Show. Right. Um, the magazine is not currently out. When do you think that it will be launched? I am looking for spring, so April, May, June, hypothetically. I'm hoping for the launch date um, as far as I can keep my morning sickness under wraps. <laughs> <laughs> So if somebody wanted to get a hold of you as far as maybe some advertising or wanted to uh, talk a little bit about the magazine or if anybody's interested in, in about the martial arts aspects of it, how can people get a hold of you? I am best reached through email or by my phone number. I don't know if you, I can leave those on yep, here. Yep, you can. Okay. So uh, my email is Caitlin Thomas. That's C-A-I-T-L-I-N-T-H-O-M-A-S dot B as in boy, V-E. VM, sorry, BVM at gmail.com. And my phone number is 404-567-6338. 
Awesome. Well, Caitlin, again, I appreciate your time this morning and being here. Do you mind sticking around and listening to these other two stories? I'd love to. Awesome. We're going to move over now to Mr. Dan Panetta. Panetta, how did I say that right? Hello, hello, hello. Dan Panetta. Yeah, I did say it right. How about that? Panetta like uh, a potato. There you go. There's a panetta instead. <laughs> <laughs> so Dan is with Atlanta Wire, Water and Fire Damage, and uh, you've shared that you've been extremely busy since Christmas Eve. Yeah, yeah. I worked Christmas Eve. Yeah. Uh, we were, you know, I'm Cuban. Cuban American, so we were about to dig into the uh, lechon asado, you know. And then I get a call from my boss. He's like, "Hey, Dino, you gotta get, you gotta get down to Atlanta, man. It's it's everywhere." And yeah, I was I was just working uh, till almost till the sun was coming up uh, Christmas morning, and uh, and they haven't stopped since. And we haven't really stopped. And we were just coming off the storm in Fort Myers, you know, the Hurricane Ian, and that was horrible. Uh, the things that we you know, saw these poor people going through, you know, so we were trying to help them and, and then we come back here and then the freeze happens. So we've, we're just, um, we have one office guy right now and we're trying to hire people. And, uh, this poor guy, I just, every time I see him, I give him a back rub, you know, I'm like, Hey buddy, <laughs> you can do this, you know? Uh, cause he's got, he's got his work cut out for him. I love you, Leo, if you hear this, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's been nuts, but even with all that, you know, people are very grateful and, um, you know, we, we're doing our best to make sure everyone gets everything they need and that they're taken care of like an actual human being. Which you is, know. you know, these days, a lot of companies don't, don't do that. And it's cool to hear that you also went down to Florida to help the folks out. I mean, you hear stories of other companies doing that, but I mean, your name is Atlanta Wire on Fire, but that doesn't mean you're just going to stick in Atlanta. For, well, my, my boss, Charlie, he lost his house in a fire. So he, that's how he got introduced to this business was his house got burned down. And then he, how he was treated and what he saw from the inside. And he was a a contractor for many years before that. So he was like, you know what, man, I think that we could do a good job just by being human. You know, I think just by being a human here, we can do better. And we did. To, and that's was one of the things at the Fort Myers residence and down in Bonita Springs and all everywhere that we were, that they said, they were like, man, you guys are from Atlanta, but we're happy. We're, we're, we feel like you're, you're from here. We feel like you're, you're with us. So yeah, it's, that's the vision. It's almost like how a Philly cheesesteak, you can get it anywhere. You know, where right. the vision is Atlanta water fire damage. You're going to be able to get it anywhere. That's kind of the idea. There you go. <laughs> so how did you get involved with this company? Well, I had my own restoration company for about eight years before that. Um, and the way I got into that was because my martial arts studio crashed and burned because I was a horrible martial arts business owner. I was a great coach, horrible business owner. So if you need someone to get better at martial arts, I can help. But if you need <laughs> someone to get better at running their dojo, I can't help. I, I'll, I, I'll hurt them. So uh, <laughs> they just do the opposite of what Dan says and you'll be fine. Right. So, um, so my dojo crashed and burned and my students were like, coach, don't die, get into uh, water restoration. And I had no idea what that was. I, you know, I was like, what are you talking about? I worked for Morgan Stanley Dean Witter before I had done some clerical work in the law field. I had never swung a hammer and now they're like, be the man. You know, and, uh, and I jumped in with both, both feet and, uh, brought some extra feet just in case. And, uh, and it was amazing because our first year of business, we did like a million five, me and, 
me and my partner, and we, we had no idea what we were doing. And we still did well. And we were like, wow. So just kept growing and growing, came up to Atlanta, did some sales training for um, a couple different companies here. I did, uh, uh, what was the name? Phoenix, and there was another one. And uh, taught their whole sales team how to be less robotic, you know, how to use some strategy. Martial arts, use strategy, you know, use strategy <laughs> and what we're doing, right? Be a little more intentional, right? And, uh, and then my, my, my current boss slash partner slash caretaker <laughs> slash, <laughs> slash, you know, ride or die. Cause I told him, I said, look, if we work together, it's like we're married. It's not, I'm not just working with you. Like we, we win, we win. That's what happens. And so, um, he saw what I was doing and he wanted to take his business to the next level. He had this, he had Atlanta water fire damage, but he, it was kind of in his back pocket and he wanted to grow to national. So then that's when he brought me on and that's what we're up to. Uh, so you mentioned your martial arts background. How did you get involved? What's your story in martial arts? My pretty much I'm a copycat. So when my big cousin does anything, I would do it. So my big cousin, Julian, he, comes home and he's like a martial arts guy now, you know, and he was like a chubby little kid and all of a sudden he could kick my ass, you know? And I was like, wait a second, that's not fair. That's not, that's not the righteous order of the universe. <laughs> so I was like, <laughs> I was like mother and father, please take me to, to the martial arts. Right. So it's four years old. They take me to Taekwondo and I did not want to ever go back. Um, the master there, Jin Chung, uh, Nim, he was like a, a, a brutal, evil monster in the eyes of a four-year-old, you know, I looked at him and I thought he ate children, you know, I was like, Oh gosh, you know? And so, uh, he wouldn't say, clap your hands. He's a Korean guy. He'd say, beat your head. So when it was time to clap, he'd be like, beat your head, beat your head. And I, and I was like, what is he saying? You know? So I would, we would call him you know, Cuban people, uh, a lot of Spanish culture. We're not as, um, refined as the United States in many ways. So like, You'll say, oh, he's Korean or he's Japanese, but Cubans, all Cubans who came in the 50s, they're like, es el chino, el chino, right? That's just everybody. So I would say to my mom, por favor, por favor, no me llevas al chino. Please don't take me to him. Please, please, please. <laughs> I was just so terrified. So they kept bringing me back uh, out of love, I guess. And uh, and um, I kept going and I never stopped. And then when I was in, in high school, I met a kid who was doing Jeet Kune Do. He was doing Bruce Lee's system and he was doing boxing and he was doing Machado Jiu. This is like 98, 97. He's doing boxing. He's doing Muay Thai. He's doing Machado Jiu Jitsu. He's doing Filipino Kali. And so he was training with a guy who was a student of uh, one of Bruce's students, uh, Bruce Lee's students, uh, Sifu Bustillo, Richard Bustillo. And so I went and jumped in again, fully boom and uh, trained, fought, became a coach. Um, fought in some unsanctioned fights in Lake Worth. Uh, this was back before there was all this stuff. I mean, we would just get together. There would be like a wood floor in Lake Worth Beach in the municipal building, and we would just all bang. It was just banging time, man. It was everybody from every style. There were no pads. There were no mats. If you did a takedown on a dude and you dropped him on the top of his dome, you just, wow. And it was just, it was just no, there was no like, oh, is he okay? Like none of that. <laughs> Your coach wasn't like, I hope he's okay. Your coach was like, yes, you know, more, right? So it was a completely different environment. And so I broke my leg on a dude's face hmm. who's actually still one of my good friends. And wow. yeah, Aaron, Aaron Joyce, he's a wonderful guy. And so I broke my leg on his face and he's a tough guy. Aaron's a tough, big Irishman. And so Aaron's like, um, 
Dino, I think, uh, I think, I think your leg's broken, you know, and we just taped it and kept going. But in the healing process, I thought, man, I looked at like my Muay Thai coaches and they're all like walking around with canes. I'm looking at my like jujitsu coaches and they've all got like their knees don't work. And I'm looking at, I'm just looking across. I'm like, dude, is this what I really want? And I happen to pick up this book by a guy named Masaki Hatsumi. He's just a ninja dude. He was saying he was a ninja dude in Japan. And I thought all that was BS, but the book was cool. So I was reading through it and I found someone who knew him in my hometown. And this guy was like this old money art dealer. He had the original uh, James Bond 1979 uh, Aston Martin from the Living Daylights in the dojo. Wow. This, uh, Chihuly, if you've ever heard of Dale Chihuly's art blows like the Picasso art. We had Chihuly, we'd break Chihuly pieces on accident with the spears practicing the dojo. It's nuts, right? So he pulls me into the world of the ninja and it is real. And I flip out because I'm from the 80s. So anything ninja is cool to me immediately. It doesn't matter what it is. You're like, hey, here's the ninja donut. I'm like, I eat it. I'm like, oh, that was great. I just don't even notice, right? So we'll get into the world of the ninja. And it ends up being that everything that I thought about martial arts was wrong. Everything. And now these five principles that I found in there through playing with these things in a, in a, from a level of uh, sincerity and wanting to work hard. Not, not wanting to be the master, just wanting to get one little piece. If, that, if it was one little piece, that's enough, right? And so through doing that, you know, that's how I lead my life now. So everything I do now, moving forward, I use these five, these five concepts that I got from ninjutsu. But that's, that's kind of like my thing. So now I have uh, online ninja training. I have rough and tumble play, which has nothing to do with martial arts. It's to help dads and moms play rough with their kids so that they learn how to have that physical contact from youth. We divorced it from the martial arts because people were freaked out by belts and kicking and fighting. So we took all of the rough, the contact, the kinesiology, all that stuff that heals your brain and that makes you a superhuman from playing with other people. We put that in a, in a program. So that's like all the stuff that my wife and I ended up doing with this stuff. So, you know, we're not combat killers. We just want to make people's lives better. That's really share the good stuff. Basically right. take out the top shelf stuff. Share the five principles. Of yeah. yeah. Uh, the first one is always be aware that there could be a hidden advantage. And in fact, count on it. So like when, when I'm sitting here, right, I don't think to myself, Oh, I'm just sitting with, with a, with a bunch of just regular people. I think, Oh, well, this guy's in shape. This guy have a gun. She was just telling me that she's a psycho uh, karate master. <laughs> Why? She just told me all her training. She just told you I beat people with no pads. I'm like, okay, <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna avoid this individual in open combat, right? So, uh, so from a ninja perspective, the idea of fighting openly is ridiculous because I'm placing myself. And in, in a targeted, like, it's like I, this man here, I w- would never try to do something in front of him because he would just crush me. But from behind and with a surprise, that makes sense. So why is that? Well, because what it looks like isn't what it is. That's the first one. The second one is don't be where you can be pushed or pulled. Meaning if we are in an engagement and I'm in a place where he can exert any force against me, that first idea that he had a, uh, an advantage I didn't know about, that's what cooks my goose. 
Because if he can put any force on me and he has a blade or he has any kind of advantage, friends, right? That all of a sudden, right? The game changes quite a bit. So I can't be where he can put any force on me. How many martial arts techniques start with the guy punches you and you block? That's force. You're receiving force. Now you could say, well, I'm blocking in such a way that I'm dissipating. Yeah, that's great. That's Budo. That's warrior samurai stuff. It's not ninja stuff. Ninja stuff is he punches. You're not there. Right, so weird. That's one thing. Don't be where he can push you. The next one is keep your weapons covering their weapons. And in real life, you know, in a sales situation, something like be aware of the rebuttals, be aware of the possible rebuttals, and have them answered ahead of time. In in a love situation, right? Be aware of your partner's insecurities. Be aware of their challenges, and be ready ahead of time. Right? That's all of that stuff. So keeping that, and then the other one is move towards his back. What do you mean move towards his back on combat? It means get to where none of his weapons are pointing at you. But in everyday life, if I have your back, right, to really have your back means I have to have control over the situation enough to be supportive in a positive way. Because help is the sunny side of control, right? You get the wrong person helping you is bad. (laughs) So I want to have your back the right way. And the last one is finish with economy of motion. Meaning if in order to beat you, in order to win, in order to get what I want, in order to complete, if what I have to do is move at a greater amplitude, at a greater speed, with more force than you, then this is tyranny. In order to get what I want, I need to have you give it to me. And that's the ultimate technique. So really those five principles, by following them, I'm always in a position where I have optimum optionality and so that's what i'm teaching like the sheriffs you know that's what i'm teaching the students teaching them to maintain option optimum optionality which comes from keeping your cool and knowing where to go next right that's cool you actually beat yeah. me to that you yeah. said you, you were i was going to mention you were you're training uh the sheriff's the cherokee county sheriff's department, yeah i've got right? some sheriffs they come they train they're kind of still in the hush hush because the thing is a lot of these guys want they learn the brazilian jiu-jitsu which is great i, I did machado jiu-jitsu it's a form of that it's wonderful art and they learn that stuff and there's a lot of toxic uh martial culture martial culture has a lot of like the bullies, it's so, it's so funny. Like you think about the martial arts as be, being the guy who beats the bully, but most of the time, the martial artist is the bully. Most of the time, in my experience, it's the guy that knows some stuff, but he's not followed it all the way. He hasn't gone all the way to the old man where the old man shows him the way. He hasn't done that yet, but he's got some stuff and he uses it. And in the West, our concept of martial art is mostly probably the worst thing that could ever have existed for humanity. I mean, our concept of fighting is horrible. You know, the hero in our movies always wins. People from the East and from people conversant in the classics are very confused by our culture because to them, the hero dies in the end. If you read any of the ancient, hero dies. That's the cost for being great is self-sacrifice. And then we started telling stories where you get to kick everyone's butt, get the girl, get the money, credits roll. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, that's wrong, buddy. So, you know, that's, that's the main thing is in Japanese called heiki. Heiki means a calm mind. And that's the idea. Even if someone's cutting me, if someone's killing me, because we always think self-defense, but really if someone busts in here and tries to hurt all of us, right? Let's say my wife and my kids. And, but I mean, I don't want a virtue signal, but let, let's say we're all here. Someone's trying to hurt. I'm a guy. This is a nice woman. I'm probably going to sacrifice myself 
to protect her, even if I don't want to, even if I think, oh, it's the patriarchy. I'm still going to do it because I'm loaded. She's life continuing. I'm loaded to protect her, right? So in which case, there's a dude coming in with a knife. Martial arts self-defense is I avoid the knife. But real life says I eat the knife for her. I eat the knife for you. I make sure I take it. And if I live, great. But the idea is so you live. Different perspective. Don't see too much of that. Right? So that's why we're doing what we're doing with Budo and with Ninpo. That's why I'm, that's why I'm here is to share that message. You know, but yeah, restoration. Yeah, whatever. But that, that part. <laughs> right? Right? More, more important. <laughs> you also shared that you, you've written a book as well, right? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a spiritual uh, ex- explorer of sorts. Uh, I joined a bunch of weird secret societies. I lived in an <laughs> ashram, uh, naked gardening. I've done it. Uh, whatever you can imagine to expand consciousness and break down the walls of – screw the doors of perception, the walls of perception, <laughs> the ceiling, right? Open that up, big octopus brain going out in the universe, you know, all that good stuff. That's all I did. So I wrote a book. Uh, my 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 uh, mentor in the occult and the spiritual traditions and all that, Jim Wasserman. He was a student of the students of the most infamous man to ever live, Aleister Crowley. And so Aleister Crowley, who was the famous evil Satanist demon worshiper, he wasn't any of that stuff. He was like C.S. Lewis or J.R.R. Tolkien. He was a fantasy writer, but you know people take his stuff. Anyways, Jimbo calls me and he's like, "Hey man, uh, I'm going to ask you to do something, but you got to say yes before I ask you." And it was Jim. And Jim was like another dad to me. So I was like, yeah, whatever you say, old man. You know? And he's like, okay, well, you got to write a book. My mother-in-law was dying of cancer during that time, stage four lung cancer. I wrote that book in hospice next to her. I don't remember writing it. I don't, uh, the, the grief has wiped the memory of writing the book. So now when I read it, it's called uh, uh, The Book of Secrets, Secret Societies, Ancient Orders, something or other doesn't doesn't matter if you look up the book of secrets you'll you'll find it and uh wrote some other stuff martial arts stuff political stuff not like left right more like how do we use martial arts to help create a better political environment where because it's really hard to hate somebody who if you're showing up every single week and you're throwing each other and you're talking and you're getting deep about what life's about it's very difficult to maintain many of these divisions so wrote a little bit about that, but you know, it's a, I just kind of take the writing gigs as they come. I've never chased, I've never tried to write or be published. I've never tried to do anything. I've never tried anything in my life. Everything has been like uh, one thing after another, like a fruit after the flower. Wow. <laughs> can people find your book on Amazon? Yeah, yeah, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, uh, Book of Secrets. It, it's not very good. So if you, so here's the thing. Here's the thing. It, it's probably it's probably one of the worst books on the subject. Uh, and the reason was I was the reason I was hired to write a book for a complete novice. So so they're like write a book on symbol so that someone who has no idea what any of this is. Like, this is like Wikipedia level, like, you know, and so I write this because it was supposed to be a part of a huge series called the wiser concise guide. And then the series got canceled after I wrote it and they said, we're going to publish it anyways on its own. And I thought, well, it's like the intro to a series. It's, it's not even complete. And it's like, ah, no problem. He goes, you know, our, our readers, they'll, they'll like it. And, and they did, but 
me being honest with you, like if you're going to read a book on symbols, there are so many better books like uh, uh, by James Wasserman or by any of these bigger guys. Like my book is a good coffee table book and, uh, and you can throw it at someone. You know, if if you need to, that's good. You know, so that's those are the well. Good so if guys. somebody wants a good coffee book, spell your last name when they look yeah, it up. Uh, Pineda, P is in Paul, I N E D A. It means Pine Glen, which is strange because oh. you know, not from the not from the woods, man. We're from Jersey, so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so you you've talked about a lot of stuff and why you're doing what you're doing, but share. You talk about treating people as humans in the yes. business. Yes. Um. Why is it important for you to be part of the community? Well, it's not so much for me. It's, I think it's more of like there's a need for human contact, right, wherever that is. And so you know, when I was a kid, I would read these old writings, these old myths, and I would think, oh, man, it would have been so great to be Hector, to be Odysseus, you know, to be – what would it be like to be Jonah, you know? And then uh, now I realize – uh uh, yeah, you are, you are, you are Hector, you are Odysseus, you are Jonah, you, you are Rahab, you're those people. And how you express that is in the contact. So the main thing that I'm bringing when I'm working in any project, but especially during a disaster, right, is I'm giving them the confidence that I'm an actual human being and that I'm going to do what I said I'm going to do, which is what I've found that that's enough for me to basically destroy almost all of my competition. So if there's like a group of 10 restoration guys and all I do is do what I say I'm going to do and make sure, you know, you're talking to a real person, like give you my actual number and answer when you call me, look you in the eye, sense the word. It's a very low bar. Unfortunately, it's a low bar, but it's something that, you know, we provide and we go all the way with it to the point where like uh, we're giving people merch and we're sending them on the dinners. And, and it's not because they're going to be a repeat customer. We don't have repeat customers. People's houses burn down usually once, <laughs> but uh, it's because we, we, we've been there. We've been there. Every single member of our team has been in a loss situation and knows what it's like. So, you know, we want to take care of people. Well, I wouldn't say it's a low bar because again, customer service these days. Right. Well, I just feel like it should like, what I'm doing, my wife and I, we talk all the time because we're like, man, all we're doing is taking care of these people like normal people. Like, how is this? Because the really what it is, the response we get, Brian, the response that I get from the public, from our customers, from our friends, they talk to me like I just gave them a like a golden Cadillac. And I'm like, wow, that's how much human beings value connection. So I, I mean, I'm learning every single day, but to me, that's, that's an unbelievable truth. So yeah, yeah, you're, you're right. I just wish we could keep going with this even more, you know, like right. this, like what we're doing now. I'm, I'm interested to see what we do in the future where all of us have been connected for longer than 20 minutes. Right. <laughs> so, uh, if somebody wants to get a hold of you for, uh, you know, water, fire, restoration or for your training or anything like that, how can they do that? Yeah. AtlantaWaterFireDamage.com. Um, is my my company for for that stuff, and if you're interested in uh, like brain transform consciousness transformation through martial arts training, which is what I really specialize in, like the trippy stuff. If you, if you mushrooms like, but mushrooms not martial arts. Martial arts not mushrooms, right? Like that, that kind of thing. Like instead of those mushrooms, do this martial arts. Um, you can get in touch with me. Uh, I have a Facebook page, but I also have artofninjutsu.com 
which is being built uh, now. It should have a capture page, but if I don't have one, just go to Atlanta Waterfire. My boss is used to strange inquiries coming through the company <laughs> on my due to me. Uh, he's like, oh, this must be to do with Dan. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> Thanks, Brian. Awesome, Dan. Thanks for being here. Um, you mind sticking around for this next story? I wouldn't miss this for the world, man. This awesome. is great. So my next guest is uh, Michael Reed. And Michael, I appreciate you being here this morning. And uh, for those of you listening and are sports fans, you may recognize his name from being a part of the Atlanta Falcons for six years. And um, you now are also a, uh, a master in the martial arts. You have your own school. You're in the Martial Arts Hall of Fame. Um, you do a lot for the community. But I'd like to start off a little bit about you're from Albany. Um, you played at Wisconsin, right? And um, give us a little background and give us, talk us through a little bit about your, your football career. Football career coming um, out of South Georgia all the way up. But before I do that, I want to say that I've listened to your other guests here who I've met for now for 20 minutes. And <laughs> I will have to say that, that my mind is racing all over the place, right? Because the stories that you're telling are the different aspects of martial arts training and how we evolve over time. And so I'm, I'm listening to your, your comments and I'm going, Oh yeah, tradition this, da, 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 da. Then I'm going, Oh, okay. So I went past the, what I call normal martial arts to get to some family style traditional martial arts that's going into the concept of how you live and what you do. And it's just all those things, you know, for me, it's, it's like, you know, it's just goose pimples everywhere. Cause I'm like, Oh, this is what I, this is what I've lived to do for a long period of time. But uh, originally from Albany, Georgia, I uh, went to Doherty High School, uh, from there to the University of Wisconsin on a football scholarship, uh, majored in computer science, graduated in computer science science. I was an all Big Ten uh, football player and also all Big Ten academic uh, football player. Uh, I was very fortunate um, to be drafted uh, in the seventh round. That was 12 rounds back in 1987 when I was drafted by the Atlanta Falcons. And then if you know anything about football, you know that most seventh rounders don't make the team. (laughs) First and second rounders, third rounders, they pretty much know they're going to be there. But after about the fourth round, people start looking at you and you're like, "Mm, we'll see what happens. So uh, I was blessed to... um, play and see my first professional football game at the same time because growing up in South Georgia, I did go to a Braves game, but never once did we go to a Falcons game. Went to plenty of college games, went to see Georgia play. Uh, my dad is a, is also played in the NFL many, many years before, before I came along, uh, was a coach. And so we, I saw more football than most people would ever want to know. Uh, I developed my love for football as a kid. Matter of fact, I learned all the capitals, uh, not capitals, all the, all the cities in Georgia based upon the football teams because I, you know, I knew everyone's mascot. And so as a kid, that was very interesting to me. So I learned the geography for the state of Georgia via high school football teams throughout the state. And so, you know, even now when someone says some small town in Georgia, I'll be, Oh, that's such and such, such. And they're like, well, how do you know that? Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, was very, very passionate about football. Um, Growing up a coach's son, there was nothing more I wanted to do than to be a football player. Okay, football player, martial artist. But I think a lot of people don't know about me unless they grew up in Albany is I was a pretty good basketball player. And so basketball probably is what set me up to be able to move on to play at Division One football and in the NFL. One of my teammates died last year. His name is Little Train, Lionel James, who played at Auburn and then played over at uh, San Diego. I had the, the, the distinct responsibility as a sophomore to guard him in practice every day. Now, Lionel was five foot seven. He was all state in the state of Georgia in football and basketball, first team. Okay. Now, did I ever stop Lionel in practice? No. But I had to do what? Move my feet, move my body, and 
Also, because I was competing with him, and this is a team that played for a state championship, and then following year we were number one in the state for most of the year, we learned the idea of competition, learned the idea of never giving up, learned the idea that I don't care that you're supposed to be better than me. Today, you got to prove it, which is very what? Martial arts-like, right? You can come with all the accolades that you want, but when we step it up, then we'll find out. And in the real world of combat, of real-life living, like you said, the person jumps you from the back. Now, what are you going to do? Do you have the will to fight? Do you have the will to survive? Can you reverse that sudden circumstance? Unlike a prize fight. Prize fight, I know I'm fighting you. We measure up. We do our thing. We line up. We touch gloves if, we, if we're sportsmanlike, and then we hammer each other. But the real life, you walk by, a person hits you in the back of the head, and now you're all out of caboodles and commits, and you got to have the will and the nerve to overcome that and survive. Okay, so a question that you may get to later, but I'm going to say it now since I'm on it, (laughs) is that when you go, I guess, training martial arts since 88. So I don't know everything, but I've certainly, I think, evolved. The longer I train in martial arts, the simpler things become. I was taught this in 19, probably 90, 91, eh, maybe 92. Martial arts is for living. Fighting is just a small, small portion of martial arts. As uh, Guru Bahati would say, my, one of my Silat and Kuntal teachers, um, a great art will take you from the cradle to the grave. Now you think about that. So that speaks to the idea of being banged up and bruised up and not being able to function. That's not a great art. I'm not criticizing anyone's art, but a great art should take you mentally, physically, spiritually, health-wise from the cradle to the grave which means it has to be flexible, right? Uh, I think everyone here has seen Taekwondo. Taekwondo is a fine system. I have people uh, who, who, who are really good fighters, okay, and that's fine. But most people aren't going to be throwing high kicks into their 80s. It's just not going to happen. So that art, which, and, and, they, and they do have this, they're just not taught a lot, must be able to adapt to the people who are still training. So maybe now instead of practicing high kicks from my head, I kick at your shin. Okay, I stomp the floor. So every art must have that. So martial arts is for living. And I think in particular, this is kind of referencing you, when you look at arts that come from Southeast Asia, okay, uh, I study uh, Kung Tao and Silat coming out of Indonesia, all right, and I've also studied Chinese martial arts since 88. So the idea of how you do martial arts there is different. It is about the culture and the way you live. Uh, I have been taught, and I believe this, that you cannot understand an art Unless you understand it's what? The culture that it came from. Because the martial arts is a reflection of the culture. It's a reflection of how you live. It's a reflection of what you do. Martial arts without concepts and principles of how you live is not martial arts. It's just fighting. So, you know, I don't know what else. You get me, you get me on a martial arts team. <laughs> no, go ahead. I, I will talk about <laughs> it, right? Because, because I've been passionate. In 1993, I opened my school. When I opened my school, it was Chinese Shaolin Center at that point in time, um, my Reason for opening the school stated, and it still exists to this day, is and was to find the truth. Now, sometimes when you're pursuing the truth, you have to leave where you're at because you get to a certain point and then you realize that there are other things that are out there and then you have to follow those directions. So I'm a person who's committed to knowing what the truth is, what works, what doesn't work. What is external training? What is internal training? Can you split them up really? What is spiritual training? What is energetic training? So all these things go together and all these things make what is considered to be the totality 
of martial arts, which is the evolution of the human being who's studying them. Okay. If you study martial arts and you're not evolving yourself, okay, that's why martial arts attracts us. That's why martial arts, we have our relationship to the teacher. The teacher is not more important than the student. The student is not more important to the, to the teacher. We talked about Master Poe at the beginning, right? Neither one was more important than the other. So it's the symbiotic relationship between teacher and student and the evolution that each person goes through that brings you to a place that allows you to function at a higher level in which martial arts is all about. Now, you can go back and ask me another question because I'm sorry I got on the martial arts <laughs> no, that's right. But when I do that, you know. That's, that's fine. I, I actually got, I got a lot of questions just because, you know, I mean, it's it's all great. But I'm, I'm passionate about three things. And, Stone, you know this. I'm passionate about helping others, connecting others, and sports is my huge passion. So the fact that I've got the three of you in this room and I've got family members who've done martial arts, I, could, I don't know if you got all day, but. You know, we might be here all day, stuff. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, so first of all, I just I would like to ask just uh, how many different types of martial arts are there? Oh, thousands. I mean, you have your general narrative of what has been publicly reported as the where martial arts came from. But the truth is, is that martial arts started when man started. When mankind started, male and female, martial arts began. Martial arts' primary function was so that a person who was smaller could overcome someone who was bigger and stronger. You really think about it. Because if you were bigger and stronger, you didn't need martial arts. You just walked over there if you're six foot six and 325 pounds with a club and you just hit the person, bang, you took your stuff and went. Okay. And of course, I'm being, I'm being generic there. <laughs> Whereas the people who were smaller, um, who weren't as physically inclined had to, Realize that how can I overcome this? Because if I can't overcome this, then this person's going to lead me or this person's going to take my stuff or if something goes wrong. So martial arts systems, they're, they're, every culture that's ever existed has martial arts uh, systems. Now in our culture, we, you know, we're quick to say, well, there's Japanese martial arts, there's Korean martial arts, there's the martial arts we do in America. Uh, there's some things they do in other parts of the world, but we don't talk about them very much. You know, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu is becoming much more, uh, popular. See, I'm old enough to where when you say jiu-jitsu to me, I don't think of Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I think of Japanese jiu-jitsu mm-hmm. because that was a warrior art and that predated that. But that didn't do the marketing that the other systems did. Okay, And, 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 I, and I'm just going to be honest with you guys. I survived myself for at least 20 years of being a martial artist, running a martial arts school because I had no real business background. But I was a really, really good martial artist and a really good teacher. And so with that being said, people were attracted and stayed and allowed me to develop to the point to where I could get a martial arts business acumen and then realize, oh, if I actually employ other people, we can have a bigger reach and do more things. You know, so other question, I'm, like I said, you know, no. hey, the football <laughs> brand at some point in time goes, what did he say? I don't know. <laughs> um, we talked about we've heard the word sensei, coach, master. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there any difference in those? Those are titles. OK, so every culture has its methodology of, of titles. Normally when you hear sensei, you're thinking Japanese martial arts. Um, sometimes you're thinking Korean martial arts, Okinawan martial arts, and so forth. But it's something normally in the karate uh, phase of things. When you hear master, master can go across a wide variety of martial arts systems, but it really just means learned instructor, big instructor, okay? Da. Chinese says it's, it's, it's just big. Okay. And then you get into senior master, elder master and so forth. So there are many different titles, but at the end of the day, the only title that's really important is what did you do to earn that? And when that person speaks to you, do you have those attributes to be able to give that person that otherwise it's just a title. And as Americans, we proved this in the seventies when martial arts came to this country, 
Most martial arts systems have what? 10 degrees of rank, generally speaking. All of a sudden in America, they were 14th degree, 18th degree. I'm a 22nd degree black belt, right? <laughs> because we're in the West. And so bigger the number, the what? Higher and more proficient I am. You're only a 10th degree, but I am a 23rd degree black belt, blah, 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 blah. Kids, biz, expo, master. Got to get ready. <laughs> so different cultures, different names, but the same thing. Teacher, student. My, tradi- my first traditional art that came to me, there was only student, teacher. Student, master, teacher. That's it. Five ranks. They converted the ranks so that people would feel. Actually, the reality, they converted the rank. They only had five degrees. Then they moved to 10 because in America, everyone had at least 10 degrees. And they just realized that a person said they were fifth degree and had been training for 40 or 50 years. And and the other person had been training for five and had a second degree or, or was, was close to them that they people were equating them as the same thing. At the end of the day, Martial arts systems are not always apples to apples. But one thing that you can count on is that, I think my martial arts will agree with me on this, when you're around certain people, there's a certain energy to that person. It doesn't matter what they study. There's a certain feel and way that they do things that's at a higher level. And that's what martial arts systems are designed to do, create a highly connected individual who can operate on a high level. That high level can be martial arts. That high level can be business. That high level can be weather. So, like, for instance, kung fu doesn't mean martial arts. Or gung fu, as they say it these days, all right? doesn't mean martial arts. It means what? Mastery of time and effort. Being good at something through your sweat equity. Wushu means martial arts Chinese. So my point is, is that the titles are one thing, but the most important thing is you, the individual. Who's more important, the style or the fighter? Oh, it's the fighter, right? It's the fighter. Now, if both fighters are equal, then the style might have something to do with it. Or are we fighting in the street? Or are we fighting in the ring? Do we have weapons? Do we not have weapons? Some styles are better designed for real survival and other styles are better designed for ring competition. Okay. So what do you need when you have, right? Yeah. So uh, looking at your site and your school and all that, you offer quite a few different classes. I've seen them for kids, for parents, community, all that. What share a little bit about your school, the different type of classes. Sure. Uh, currently, the name of our school is Premier Martial, Premier Martial Arts Marietta. And then I also have a separate academy there known as Aquas Academy or Academy of Qigong and Internal Studies. So covering those two things, uh, Premier Martial Arts is actually a bigger group of franchise. Uh, at some point in time, I was reached out in martial arts and I decided that if I was going to grow and evolve and if I was going to have a business exit plan, then it needed to be bigger than me. So I joined a bigger group. And with that comes different resources and so forth. Um, the most important thing to me when I made that decision was that the people who were involved actually did do real martial arts. Okay. Because I had no desire to do dojo. That was not my focus or function. I spent my whole life not doing that. So at premier, we focus on empowering the lives of all of our students, but in particular kids. So we have a tiny chance program ages three to four. Now, if you know anything about martial arts, in our culture, it's very difficult to actually train a three and four year old and, you know, take the stance, do this right here. So three to four year old class is developmental. How to have a friend, how to talk to someone, how to interact, how to act when things don't go your way, how to share. OK, along the way, they learn a punch or a kick and they do some other stuff and they learn how to stand on one leg and get some how to roll and how to fall and blah, blah, blah. But really, we're just preparing them with the life skills that will be necessary as they go forward. Then the five to seven-year-olds, we call little champs, 
they are now springboarding from that. They're old enough now to actually have an attention span. And their attention span is 30 minutes. <laughs> Sometimes parents will say, why is this class not an hour? I said, their attention span is 30 minutes. Okay. <laughs> so one of the things that we do at the school is we do recognize the, the attention span that kids have and their growth potential of where they should be. So we don't run a tiny champs class, three to four, the same way we run a little champs class. We don't run a little champs like kids, eight to 12, because they have different developmental stages that they're at. The arts or the style that they're being taught is kickboxing. Why? Because kickboxing is straightforward and simple, and everybody's martial art kickboxes, whether they want to say it or not. If you take a traditional stance and you do high block punch, that's jab or cross or cover. It's the same thing. So we like to teach that because it's simple. And in martial arts, one of the things that you need is repetition, repetition, repetition. So we can hide repetition with drills. Okay, So kids don't get bored when they do boxing and kickboxing. All right. As they get a little bit older, so uh, then they move into the Krav Maga. And the reason why we teach Krav Maga is that one is very popular. Uh, it's not ring-based. And it allows people to actually take a philosophy of, of things to solve problems. Okay, So that's the other big thing with martial arts. Martial arts is problem-solving. right? So we use that because it's simple. Um, I played for teams in football to where you had one or two plays, and I played for teams in football where you got 50 plays. Okay. Oftentimes, the teams that run one or two plays really well are pretty good. Even if they mask it with 6,000 motions and movements, but they run what? Three plays. Okay, so Krav Maga is based upon the ideology that I'm going to be able to respond under pressure. What happens under pressure? We all degrade. None of us move quite as fast. We don't think it's clear. No matter how much you train, there'll be a slight delay. If you train something over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, your odds of performing under pressure are what? Really high. So for a beginning level martial artist, I think the Krav Maga is an excellent way to start to learn real defense if you have to really defend yourself. Is it the only way? It is not. Now, some people disagree with me on that, but that's that's my <laughs> understanding based upon the training that I have seen across a wide collective of information. Okay, um, And we run that also for a teen adult class, and, and that's the general thing. Each program is taught with a little more realism. Okay. We shouldn't teach a five to seven year old the same way we teach an eight to 12 year old the same way we teach a 13 to 16 year old the same way we talk to a mother or a young lady who's 18 to 22 who may be accosted in the street. But we have to give people the real life scenarios of what they have to deal with. Okay. And then the other side of that is the Academy of Chicago Internal Studies, where I still teach the traditional arts that were given to me. I teach Kung Fu. Uh, I still teach, um, Tai Chi and Bagua and Shingi, those are internal arts, meditation, Qigong. Uh, and then in about, was it about 12 years ago, I was introduced to Silat and also uh, Kuntao coming out of Southeast Asia. And that changed my life. The reason why is that those people who were in that particular system were still very traditional, still trained in the old ways. Okay. Um, and they were all street, not credible. They, they, they were street-based, war-based, traditional martial arts-based, meaning that we're not fighting unless we're really fighting. And if we're fighting, we're fighting for our lives. So as one of my instructors said to me, he goes, Mike, you have a lot of information, okay? And, and you've lots of terms, lots of movements, lots of forms. You have some ability to fight. He goes, but every technique I was ever taught was to kill somebody. So what I learned from that after processing war was that everybody's techniques are pretty much the same. Because you got two hands, two feet. It's the only thing. But what changes is your intent, 
right? If my intent is to survive in the ring, that's one thing. If my intent is to have a hard sparring match at the school, that's another thing. If my intent is to survive when someone is accosting me or jumping me from the rear, that's different. But if we go into a scenario in which we know someone's going to die, do you care about a black guy? You don't. So the intention changes what you will do with the movements and how you will do them. Okay? The, the, the flick to the face or the head becomes in the eye. And I'm not trying to be graphic. I'm just saying the, the ideology is different. So your mindset has to change. So I also hope that anyone who's listening to me does not think I have just said, you know, you should flick people in the eye and, and kill them. <laughs> that's uh, what I heard. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to go. That's because you are ninja. Well, that's good. <laughs> See, ninjas <laughs> just, as a ninjas just here so, flicking so, in the eye, so, man. We get excited. So, so what, I'm, I know, what, what I'm trying to say <laughs> is that you have to be responsible with your martial arts. Okay. Too much is given, too much is expected. So the higher my skill level, the greater my capacity to do damage, the harder I should work to not have to do damage. So one of the things I work on as a martial art is that I don't want to touch you. As one of my teachers told me, because the highest levels never touch anyone. They look at you, they're pissed off, they want to fight. You look at them, you have an energetic communication, and they just forget why they want to fight you, and they move on. That's high-level martial arts. But if the person attacks you, you must be able to do something. Notice I said they attack me. I'm not planning to attack anyone. The only odds, only difference is that is if I have to defend people who can't defend themselves, in which case I'm going first, right? Because I can't wait. So all of these things fall into a big bucket of martial arts. We like to subdivide them and so forth. But at the end of the day, they're about each person evolving, each person growing, each person understanding what they have and how they can use it. That's what I talk to my students about all the time is you got all these tools in your toolbox. How are you going to use them? How are you going to deploy them? And will you deploy them? Well, only deploy them if you really need to. And then with that, use common sense, right? I know, unfortunately for myself, if I get jumped in the street and I survive the, the, the incident and I really damage someone, they're going to come after me. They're going to say that no matter, no matter what happened at some point in time, you should have been able to calm down and fix yourself, you know, to which I'm going to be like, if someone tries to attack me with deadly force, it is what it is. Okay. But my point is, is that I would prefer to stay out of that. So the higher level of fighting is controlling myself so that, you know, you still call me a bad name and it doesn't just make me go off. Okay. I'm all right. We're good. All right. You lay your hands on me. That's different. Right. But we want to be able to manage all those things. So what I'm getting at is that fighting for a good martial artist is always the last resort. But if you're a good martial artist, you should be able to fight. I just keep sitting here thinking Stone of the Kung, the song Kung Fu Fighting. Just keep growing <laughs> through my head right now. Uh, now you also, uh, you've written a book, correct? You know what? I've got three or four books that I have not finished writing. I did way more video work because I can't, I came along when the video transfer kind of take, take took place. And so everybody wanted to start to see things on videos and make videos and so forth. But I've got like two or three books in the can that probably over the next two, two years, I'm going to, I'm going to finish okay. them up. I've got a student uh, who's a professor of, of English and uh, he can go in and, and, and make sure that my words are cultivated correctly. And I don't have spelling because my mother, who was a librarian or was, was a charge of media for Doherty County would lose her mind. If she looked in there and saw all types of grammatical <laughs> issues and so forth, she'd be like, I did not raise you like that. So, so that book's coming. It is. Coming. All right. Sounds like my mother and my wife. Cause I shared last time, you don't want me writing anything cause I have comophobia cause I don't use them. So you just have to stay away from that. Uh, you also do motivational speaking, though. Yes, yes. I haven't done as much of that uh, over the last couple of years. But, yeah, that's something at this point in time, 
we talk about community. We talk about giving back to the community. I am blessed. I have always had people pour into me from the martial arts industry to the guys down the street. So I'm in that era. So I'm born in 64. All those guys who were five to 10 years older than me spent time with me. They taught me. They're the reason why I got it, where I'm going. Uh, the martial artists have always invested far more into me than I quote unquote paid for. Okay. So when you're given all this information, all this love, all this knowledge, then it's your job, at least to me, to pass that on, to pay it forward. You know, you, to just get information and to hold on to it, it's egotistical and it doesn't do anyone good. So I know that I grow. I'm going to be selfish now. I grow as a practitioner and as a person when I share. I have been raised to be a teacher from the entire time that I've been on this planet. And so teaching is very natural to me. So sharing what information has been given to me is something that I consider to be a mission of what I do. It's one of the reasons I've stayed in this industry for so long and not tried to run off and do other things because I could have made more money doing other stuff. But this is a passion. And now with all the information that I've been given from the healing and health and punching and kicking, uh, particularly more interested in healing health right now, but I will, you know, I want to be able to pass that on to those people who, who, who need it and can do something with it. Um, I'm going to circle back around to your football. Mm -hmm. You, uh, you mentioned you played high school in, in Albany, you went to Wisconsin and you obviously played in the NFL with the Falcons. Um, first of all, somebody's listening and they wanted to know the difference. I'm very, very curious. I mean, I know the differences, but share the difference in each level. How was how that transitioning each level? So the first thing is football is football. It's the same game when you play when you're 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 years old for those who start that early. It's the same game. The game never changes. When you walk out between the hashes, it's the same game. But every time you go up, the athletes who you compete with get faster, bigger, stronger, smarter, and more motivated. So if you go, let's, let's just say in high school, you're going to have a few really good players and a lot of kind of good players, okay? And some places you don't even have good players. You just have guys who are just trying to do the best they can, and that's okay. So those guys who are quote-unquote outstanding or who normally go on to college are pretty much heads and shoulders above everybody who they played against, right? Although there's a difference. So, for instance, you play on a JV team and you go to the varsity, the world's different, and you have to make the adjustment. When you get to college, virtually everyone on the college roster was a star. So everyone's got to start what? Over. So I wasn't a five-star, four-star, blue-chip prospect. Nobody wanted me. I played out of position in high school. I played tight end as my primary position, split in when we were going to pass. It's pretty obvious. Um, ran back kicks and punts. Didn't play a down the defense because our defense was number one in the region. They didn't need me. I wanted to play defense badly because who else said, no, you're staying over here. Okay. Um, and so at being six foot two and 200 pounds, that's not D1 tight end. Tight end started like six five. I think six four is the minimum. Okay. So I was perfect size for a linebacker and Wisconsin took me as the athlete. So my only scholarship offers, I had two D1 offers. I had uh, Wisconsin who recruited me and I had South Carolina and I'm not going to tell that story. That's one of those <laughs> ones where I'm like, I don't want to, I'm not going to expose how that went down, but, but they, but they did offer. Um, and then Tennessee State and Davidson. And when I went to Tennessee State, I was like, you know what? This is, seemed like this could be cool, but they were having problems with money and finances at that point in time. They were, had a, just had a story in Sports Illustrated where they were having difficulties buying tape. And I was like, I don't know if I want to do that. And when I went to Davidson, Davidson was out in the country. Okay. And I was just like, I'm not 
ready for that right here. So I went to where I wanted to go, which is play big time college football, where I could prove myself. So when I showed up at the University of Wisconsin, the majority of my class was far higher rated than me. Matter of fact, when they got to me, they were like, uh, said all that. Oh, this is Mike Reed. Uh, he was second team all region tight end. We don't know what he's going to play <laughs> and so forth. But I made my mind at that point in time that I would prove to them who I was and I would prove to them and represent South Georgia because I'm really proud of that. And so that's what I set out to do. When you get to the NFL, once again, that whole group of athletes now, who, who got to the NFL roster that didn't do well in college? Nobody. Everyone on the NFL roster is a certain size, a certain heart, and so forth. So athleticism now becomes a premium. I was an average NFL athlete, but I wasn't average in my head in terms of thinking and evaluating and understanding leverage. And my heart was really big because I'm too stupid to think that you can beat me. Okay? So the biggest difference is the athleticism changes. The speed of the game changes. The physicality changes a little bit because the athletes and the, and the speed change. And then as a Athlete, can you adjust your competition, your heart, to compete at that level, right? There's a difference between what? Uh, B-level fight, C-level fighter, B-level fighter, and A-level fighter, right? It's no different than, than, than going up in the football ranks. The athletes change. The game doesn't really change. The speed of the game changes drastically, and your heart must match what's taking place. To me, that's still that. Your determination to overcome, your belief in yourself, and your ability to execute that belief at a high level. So that's the, the biggest difference to me. You, I'm sure you had a culture shock going from South Georgia to Wisconsin. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, when I went to Wisconsin, the only thing I really knew was uh, I knew that uh, Milwaukee, you know, was in Wisconsin and Happy Days was, you know, theoretically <laughs> filmed there. I had never heard of a brat. I had didn't know what a poker was. Uh, I didn't know what a cheese head was, which to this day, do not call me a cheese head. I am not a cheese head. I'm a South Georgia. Um, so it was it was a big difference. Obviously. Georgia has a much larger black population than Wisconsin has. So that means the culture of the state and what you do is a lot different. Uh, I went to a school that had 40,000 people on campus, right? And I think there are 1,500, 1,600 uh, people who were, who were black. And half of they, them were from Africa and didn't consider themselves to be um, black. They were like, we're from Africa. We're Africans. We're not uh, black, uh, black Americans. So it was only about 800 of us on a four. 40,000 uh, plus campus. So that is a bit of a, a culture shock. It is. When you can't get grits, that's harsh. You, know? you guys laugh, can't get grits, you know. Um, you know, not a lot of greens, you know, just a lot of potatoes and things. So you're like, you know, you guys are having raw hamburger meat? What? <laughs> you know, so I'm just going, it, it was it was different. Uh, you couldn't get your hair cut oftentimes, especially being black, because the bar, what, what what business was going to be that unless you went to that side of town where there were, you know, a small population lived. So um, it was amazing to see kids come to college who were from upper Wisconsin, Minnesota and other places who had never met someone who was black. And so they would look at you and they would, they would, the only image they had in their head is what they saw on TV. So you imagine that conversation, you know, it's quite a bit different. So it was a lot. Uh, I wouldn't trade it because it was five years. I was registered. It was one, five of the best years of my life. Uh, and it definitely has projected or trajected my life where it should be. So, you know, I, I would never, ever give up that experience. It was the right experience for me. I always tell people if I had to play linebacker in high school, I probably never, never got to Wisconsin because I'd have been highly recruited as a linebacker down in the South. But it worked out for me. You know, it wasn't a perfect experience. Um, 
but it's changed my life and it's meant most to me. Like some of them, I spent time last night with uh, a gentleman who's the head of a, a law firm that's now in Atlanta and in Chicago, you know, who played, who kept everybody off me so I could go make tackles, you know. So I still am greatly and deeply connected with all those guys who I played with and a few other people who I knew as students that are at Wisconsin. So it was a fantastic experience for me. It was a great, great decision. What years were you with Atlanta? I was with Atlanta. I was drafted in 87, and then I played here for six years through 1992. Um, in 1993, they released me. I went to Cleveland uh, for the summer. Uh, that's the interesting thing. I, literally, I'm signing. I, I figured football's over. I just signed my lease. I'm sitting at the table signing, signing my lease for my martial arts school. I'm feeling like, okay, I'm ready to move on to this next thing. And the Browns called. <laughs> and my wife did that time was like, well, aren't you going to go? And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to go, you know, because you don't not go. But but at that point, my heart was no longer in it, you know. Um, and so, you know, I didn't try to get cut. And I played, that played okay. But I also knew that I didn't play as passionate as I could have played. And I knew that when they released, um, I was playing for Bill Belichick because he was with the Browns at that point in time. Uh, I can't think of the linebacker who they, uh, he was, he went to Ohio State and he played for the Giants. Pepper, Pepper Johnson. When they released Pepper Johnson, the two of us who were competing for the other spot, we knew we were out of there because that, because Pepper was his guy and Pepper obviously could play too. So, uh, you know, you, you gotta know when something ends and then you move forward from there. Well, I'm from Dayton, so Cincinnati Bengals are my team, so I'm just glad you didn't play Cleveland. <laughs> so, no, uh, the year, if you, uh, this is just me being a sports nut and football fan, but did you have a particular person that you really wanted to hit on the football field when you were playing? We just enjoyed that tackle. <laughs> you know, when you're playing in the game, you just want to make the plays you're supposed to make. You know, uh, I got a couple of pictures that, that still follow me every once in a while. You see them on Facebook. I had a couple of sacks on Joe Montana, and I always tell people, you might not know me, but you know him. <laughs> yes. Yes. Awesome. You know, uh, you know, it, it's like, for instance, um, I remember we played against Kansas City and we were playing uh, Christian Okoye, right? And, and our coach was like, you know, don't hit him in the chest. Just cut his legs out, you know, because he's too big and too strong. So um, you're playing against Barry Sanders and, you know, Coach Glanville at that point in time would say, you know, I don't want you to break down. I just want you to pick your leverage spot and run through it because he's too athletic. Make him cut back to the inside, you know. So he's basically saying don't be a fool on ESPN or whatever was going on <laughs> because Barry will make you look sick out here if you try to break down and cut with him. So it, it's – I never really thought about who I was playing. My thing was I have a job to do and I'm doing my job. You know, I studied the people who I had to play against, respected the people who I had to play against and wanted to find a way to beat the people who I had to play against. There you go. So I have to ask this, what made you go from football to martial arts? I mean, you shared before the show, the mm-hmm. one TV show that really, you really liked, but share, I mean, just share the difference or the going from NFL football to martial arts. Well, going from the NFL to martial arts, it goes back to the story I told you in the beginning. Two childhood dreams. You know, some people want to be an astronaut. I wanted to be a football player and a Shaolin Kung Fu master. So when I got done playing football, I had the options. I'd worked for IBM, I think, five or six times at that point in time uh, in Florida and in Wisconsin, here in Atlanta. And I thought that that was going to be my route. Then I decided that I didn't want to sit in an office. Nothing against IBM. Just that I didn't want to sit in the office. I wanted to do something that was active. I still wanted to be involved in coaching and I wanted to be involved in, in, in being an athlete. So that led me to choose something that I wanted to do. So I chose to much the chagrin of people in my life to operate a business, not knowing all that businesses fail all the time and not understanding a whole bunch of other stuff, but I chose my passion. So because of that passion, I took the things that I learned from martial arts, I mean from playing football, and took them into the martial arts teaching and coaching arena and survived myself in business. 
you know. So it's it's more to do with just another passion. So that's my that was my passion, and, I, and I've kept that passion now longer than I played football, you know. So that's a good thing. So uh, you already shared why you're part of the community because people give them back to you when you were growing up. So um, if somebody wanted to get a hold of you for your school or uh, even if someone wanted to hear you speak, um, how can people get a hold of you? Easiest thing to do is call our school, uh, 770-422-9250. Once again, 770-422-9250. You can reach out to me directly. Just ask for uh, Master Reed or if you ask Mike Reed, it'll still get to me. And I will be happy to give you information about the school. And then if you want to know about the things that I do outside of the building, uh, te- you know, uh, Running special workshops, uh, talking, speaking, you know, and teaching. We're here and available to take care of that. Uh, Michael's all, always good. I met him doing a fundraising event a few years ago at a poker tournament mm-hmm. uh, for a fundraiser. So uh, I appreciate everything you do and everything you got. I got two more questions for all three of you before we wrap this up. Um, I'm just sitting here thinking, you know, people always say it's never, you're never too old to do anything. I'm just curious from the three of you, is that true for martial arts? Can people get involved? at any age and learn things. Caitlin, I'm going to let you start with that answer. Oh, absolutely. Um, I remember in our karate studio when my instructor approached me about assisting in women in self-defense classes, the majority of the women that we were teaching were in their 40s, uh, 30s, 50s. They were in that general population where you do have to be concerned about predators, unfortunately. Um, and we did have a couple of them approach us after the training seminars to be more involved in the classes and more hands-on. And, um, Definitely. I mean, you can be learning at any age. Dan? Yes, with a caveat, right, which is have a goal, right? So when you come into martial arts, a lot of times, and you're older, chances are you haven't done it before, right? So in your mind, have a goal. Have something that you are going to get out of it, and then hold yourself to that standard. And your teacher, Hold your teacher to that standard if that's part of your, your program. So yes, martial arts can be taken up. I, my, the oldest student I ever had was 93 years old. Wow. And I taught uh, Tai Chi and Qigong at a doctor's office for like two years. And I had tons of octogenarian patients that were my people. And so no, it's never too late, but we had specific goals because you, if you're older, you don't have 40 years. You need to get, you need to get what you need. So, you know, their, their goal at the doctor's office with the Taiji Chuan and, and, and the Qigong was, you know, to get off of certain blood pressure medications and things like that. And we did that with diet and, the, and the, mostly the breath work. So because I, we had the goal, yeah, my 80-year-old student, they, fe- they felt like they got a lot out of it. But if I had just started teaching them Wuji and stand there and here's this and that, they would have, you know, maybe they would have loved it, but they wouldn't have gotten the benefit. So that's the piece. What do you think, Michael? You know? Getting older myself these days. <laughs> <laughs> I believe that, that you can start martial arts at any age. I do think that it's important sometimes to look at what the systems are that you're studying. If you're 85 years old and you're unathletic uh, and you're out of shape, then maybe you shouldn't be in arts where they're throwing you. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Okay. All right. I'm not saying that you shouldn't do martial arts, but maybe that's not the best choice to begin with. One of the things our esteemed colleague right here just mentioned is that, you know, we talked about uh, like a lot of people wouldn't say that Tai Chi and Qigong are martial arts. 
I would disagree with that. I disagree. But, but most people would say that's not really martial arts because of what they're doing. But those are softer styles. Softer meaning that they're more breath work, more posture, more structure, more focus, more energetic movement, more clarity in the brain. Whole focuses get blood moving throughout the body from the heart out to the periphery so that you can get more blood circulation, more blood oxygen so that you'll feel better about what you're doing. So my answer to that is evaluate what it is you would like to do and then do it. Now, if you want to do a throwing art and you're 85, then you need to find an instructor who's good enough to help you slowly work your way through that because that's your passion. So we shouldn't tell you that you can't do it unless you just realistically can't do it. So I think that that any age is good. The biggest thing is that what am I doing? I'm challenging myself, right? I'm challenging my myself to grow in ways that I've not grown. And oftentimes when we're older, we have a better mental outlook that is in traveling correspondence with what the true philosophies of martial arts are. When we're younger, we want to fight. We want to you know, punch someone in the face. We want to self-defense. As you get older, we start talking about what? How do I live? And so martial arts can always help a person live their best life and teach them to what? Problem solve. Last question for all three of you. I always like to end the show with uh, asking this for the folks that are here. Uh, I'd like for you guys to share a, a quote, a word, and just a nugget for somebody to live 2023 and beyond with. Caitlin? Um, well, if you don't understand yourself, you will lose 100% of the time. And if you understand yourself, you can win 50% of the time. If you understand yourself and your opponent, you'll win 100% of the time. So, you know, focus on not only learning yourself, but your surroundings, um, how to use your surroundings and, you know, how to be aware, uh, be more aware. Um, and that's part of martial arts as well is just growing that awareness. Um, all right. Thank you, Dan. So this is like wise words for 2023 yeah. and, and beyond <laughs> groove is in the heart. That's the, there was a band called delight and their big hit was groove is in the heart. And that to me getting out of, Getting out of preconceived notions of what should be and being ready to work with what is with a groove in mind. That, that to me is, is the way for 2023, brother. <laughs> for me, it's pretty simple. Keep moving. All right. Recognize that we are ever evolving beings. And when we become stagnant, the world kind of, we restrict, we contract. Whereas when we keep moving, we allow ourselves to grow. So it's a simple thing, but it's not always the easiest thing to do. When you have heartache, when you have disease, when you get sick, when things happen to you unexpected, what is our thing that we normally do? We ball up in a thing and we feel real bad and we stop what? Moving. It takes a lot of courage to get back up on your feet and do whatever it is you're doing and then try to elevate yourself to the next level. So personal elevation, right? Personal elevation grow and then keep moving. So day to day, you're continuing to grow a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more into so that you can evolve into the spiritual being that you are meant to be. Awesome. Well, Caitlin, Dan, Michael, again, I appreciate you guys coming this morning. And uh, for those out there listening, let's remember, let's be positive. Let's be charitable.